0: Hello, everybody. Welcome on into the Check Your Brain podcast here, wherever you're listening to this on Patreon or iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tony Mazer. Thank you for listening, subscribing, whether it's for free on this podcast every Wednesday or for five bucks a month on my Patreon. Thank you uh, for being a part of that and listening to upwards of four podcasts a week, about 20 podcasts a month, early access to guests, and those podcasts on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony mazer. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go over to one of my good friend and frequent guests on this podcast, Rick Morris's house, because he and I share a love of one of our favorite presidents, Calvin Coolidge. Why do we talk about Calvin Coolidge? Well... We decide to because it was around his birthday. It was right after July 4th, and I know it's a couple of weeks ago, but we get into a conversation where we do talk about the great president that was Calvin Coolidge and what he accomplished and what a lot of people don't understand about his presidency that kind of propelled uh, what happened in the Roaring Twenties and A lot of people looked back in the days of Ronald Reagan and fiscal conservatism and saying, gosh, you know, that guy wasn't a bad president after all. And we start talking about some of those presidents, like Coolidge, and applying what was going on 100 years ago to today, and uh, we get into a very good conversation. So here is my episode, Uh, and I apologize for the microphone situation. We only had one microphone, so we shared it, so if I sound a little bit off in the distance in some parts, uh, that's just because that's how it was, so uh, we couldn't really fix it, but I tried to bump up and play with the audio as much as I can, but I hope you enjoy this podcast, this is myself, with permission from Rick, this is the FDH Lounge, check out his podcast as well, over on uh, YouTube, and his work uh, with Russ Cohen and Sportsology, and uh, make sure you get their book about the greatest players in the NBA as well, so here's my conversation talking about Rick, with Rick Morris, about Calvin Coolidge, and other policies during the Coolidge administration. Welcome to the FDH Lounge.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1492. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here with a very beloved FDH Lounge dignitary, a good friend of mine having back on the show here. And uh, he was uh, at the same place uh, recording here previously uh, with me, uh, the old family homestead in uh, Parma, Ohio. We are meeting here to uh, break down the life and times of Calvin Coolidge. Now, I had done a solo segment on this, kind of giving my own thoughts, because I was kind of unsure if Tony and I were getting a chance to do this, but uh, mercifully, uh, he has made time for us, and uh, very grateful to get a chance to get his perspectives on a president that is of great interest to both of us. So, uh, Tony Mazur, good to have you back in, my friend, and uh, of course, on, on your own podcast. I know this is a topic that you had already covered. Why don't you you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, first of all, thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. And I like being on episode 1492. I feel very uh, Columbus-esque.
1: Very historic. Uh, (laughs) I haven't murdered
0: any Indians since I've been here, but you know. Um, But yeah, Calvin Coolidge, it was interesting because the reason I got into Calvin Coolidge is probably the same way you did. And his name resurfaced in the 1980s when mm-hmm. during Ronald Reagan's, I think, his second election and inauguration is that people are kind of looking at the small government conservative, the, uh, you know, not the tax and spend, which, ironically, I was just looking into this last week. You know, Reagan actually spent more than Clinton. If you look at it by the actual numbers.
1: I can believe that. And that's one of these things where I will at least say, I mean, he had the excuse of, he made the deal with the Democrats. That was how he was able to get the defense spending that I think was decisive in the Cold War. But you raise an interesting point, is that I have always felt like a very tragic historical figure for missed opportunities, George H.W. Bush. Yes. Because the Cold War was done. We had a chance to basically reset and basically have it Reagan without all that other crap. He didn't do it. And yeah, like you said, Clinton, ironically, he got reined in a little bit by uh, the Republican Congress.
0: Yeah. And that's really what kind of changed things. And he didn't spend as much money as that, uh, what you saw with Ronald Reagan, but during the Reagan years, they kept thinking about, Hey, this small government, these, uh, you know, not a lot of government spending. And they started looking at historical figures and one mm-hmm. of them was Calvin Coolidge. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a two pronged thing for me because it was not only that, but it was also He was, you know, you go back in history, and I I have a uh, admitted, uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, academia, as you hear on my podcast Mm -hmm. talk about it. And one of the big things that I have a problem with with teaching civics in school and teaching about social studies is trying to get through world history from essentially Labor Day to Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. You're going to teach a class, all of that world not even U.S. history, world history. Mm-hmm. You're, what are you, you're going to start with evolution or whatever you want to believe at the beginning all the way up to the present day by the time Memorial Day rolls around. Mm-hmm. U.S. history, one of my big problems with U.S. history is that you, would, you learn about the beginnings as the aforementioned 1492, mm-hmm. and, you, know, you know 1619, <laughs> 1620, all yeah. the way to 1776, 1791, mm-hmm. And then you have basically, and then you have the Civil War. You're right around Christmas. You're learning about the Civil War. Then you go on Christmas break. You come back. You start learning about others, like the French and Indian War, and then you get to World War One, where you cover for about two days. Mm-hmm. Then it's oh, it, you know, oh, the Great Depression, and then here we are, World War II, Vietnam, Watergate, and then oh, end of the school year. Here's time for our final exams. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems is you start glossing over these historical figures. No, regardless. So it almost seems like we start to focus as kids because there's just so much time in a school year that you focus on the more populist mm-hmm. presidents of yep. the time where you, good or bad, you, what are the ones you think about? You think about Washington, Jefferson, mm-hmm. all the way to basically Lincoln. Yep. Then it's Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. FDR, mm-hmm. Mm, Kennedy. LBJ, and then the more the modern day presidents of the last fifty years—Nixon, learning about Watergate, Reagan—and mm-hmm. um, one thing I was always wondering is why aren't we learning about some of these other early twentieth-century presidents? We know we knew too much about Teddy Roosevelt, not enough about William McKinley, right? Not enough about what William Howard Taft did, other than getting stuck in a bathtub, right? We don't—I mean, unfortunately, not enough of us know about Woodrow Wilson and a lot of, in my opinion, the damage he did from. Military industrial complex to the academia, that kind of more of a you know, plaguing that and talking about uh, um, institutional affairs and everything. Yeah. And you start looking at other Harding, and then you get to Calvin Coolidge. And in school, when you were starting to learn about the presidents, Calvin Coolidge was he was Silent Cal. He didn't speak much. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. Then we move on to and then there was Hoover and the Great Depression, FDR and World War Two. You. Go, so we've, we spent a total of 30 seconds on someone like Calvin Coolidge, not understanding the impact that those six years of him being president yeah. had on the o- almost up until the halfway point of the 20th century. And mm-hmm. I've been fascinated by what he ever kind of everything that's been around him. And I had the opportunity about a year ago to interview Amity Schlaes, who is uh, the I believe she's the chief of the um, Coolidge Foundation up in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And it just getting a little bit more information on somebody that I've been very fascinated about that I didn't really know too much about myself other than some of a lot of the laissez-faire capitalism and economic policy that he had. And again, it's not a sexy topic. Right. This is what I always love. When you have a mayor Mm -hmm. who runs for your local mayor's office and they have a – he comes in there and says, I want to fix the sewers. Mm -hmm. And you go – what about health care? What about uh, racial issues? What about this and that? But you don't realize you need you do need the sewers fixed. Yes. So they're not sexy issues, right. but they need to be covered. And that's what Calvin Coolidge, as lieutenant governor in Massachusetts, as vice president, and then as president from 1923 to 1929, was able to kind of just do the grunt work uh, that a lot of people didn't even think two things about. There were just flapper girls just dancing in the streets at that <laughs> point. At least that's how we perceived things about 100 years ago.
1: Yes. And uh, I can tell you that uh, the non-sexy issues, uh, as somebody who is uh, on an HOA board and gets screamed at by all the mutants in my association, uh, I can (laughs) can second that notion here that people do not understand functional governance and the things that you need to do uh, to get through that. And that's a thing where your point to me is very interesting because it was similar to one that I did when I recorded my solo podcast on him, because you talk about the two Roosevelts there and Wilson in there. That was the beginning of essentially the progressivism that would come to define the 20th century. And you've got Coolidge as sort of an island within that. Harding as well, but I mean, Harding isles kind of got the sense of was uh, just somebody who I, I got the sense just kind of snoozed through his years and everything like that he wasn't he
0: took the big snooze
1: yeah he took the big snooze yeah I mean you don't you don't think of policy with him the way that you do with Coolidge. I mean you know Coolidge from my research on it to, to get ready for this you know carried on Harding's uh, policies at least for the period of time and I was like, well that couldn't have been too hard because I don't think Harding necessarily stood for too much but Coolidge stands as that island in a period of time. And when he was gone, it would never be the same because even Hoover coming after him, Hoover was somebody where, again, once the Great Depression hit, uh, well, starting with the, uh, the, the stock market meltdown, he goes into panic mode. Oh, what can I do? Oh, let's put some huge tariffs on everything. Like, he was pretty much up for grabs as far as economic policy went. He was kind of blowing in the breeze a little bit. Then Roosevelt comes along, the second one takes it further than we've ever taken it before, and we're off to the races. So, I mean, as far as... That moment in time, and for as much as you know, you know, if you talk about Reagan, Reagan openly identified with Coolidge, and it's a thing where I think that was, I, I think it did Reagan a lot of credit at the degree to which that was true. But this is a thing where, I mean, as I was going through my research, it was really kind of saddening because, in terms of policy, in terms of the presidency not being a cult of personality, uh, the lack of narcissism that just about every president since has had that kind of narcissism, but not him. I mean, he was the last of a dying breed on January 20th, 1929. I think it would never be the same, even though people didn't know that at the time.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Rick, Rick and I talk a lot of sports. We were on the phone earlier talking about sports <laughs> and commissioners and everything. Yes. And when you think about baseball uh, umpires and referees and basketball and football, the best ones are the ones you don't hear from, mm-hmm. that they don't cause controversy, yep. that, that there's no C.B. Buckner's, there's no Angel Hernandez, there's right. no, none of these Joe West, any of these kind of umpires. Right. The ones that are probably the best ones are the ones you don't hear anything about. And that's probably a good thing when we talk about Calvin Coolidge, is that, again, all we hear about is Silent Cal. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, was, uh, he was the president during the 20s, okay, and then, and everybody moves on to the more populist Uh, type of presidents, whether it's actual populism or phony populism. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did is he was a policy guy. Mm -hmm. He's not a guy that is somebody that we're going to look back in terms of like talking about his personality, because we don't really know much about his personality. And the other thing is he's the 30th president of the United States. (laughs) Not that long ago. Yeah, ideally, not that long ago. I mean, we're talking about just about 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about Martin Van Buren. We're not talking about James Monroe. We're talking about somebody 100 years ago that just did his job and knew his clothes. Mm -hmm. He knew his clothes. He knew because by the end, when when Hoover was really a disaster of a president, Mm -hmm. that there were calls before FDR started running that they said, we kind of like that Coolidge guy. And he's like, I did it. I'm done. Now you don't need to hear from me. Plus, he was dealing with his own health issues, and he retired and you know, just a few years after his presidency is when he ended up uh, sadly passing away, mm-hmm. but he felt he did all he could do. Yeah. And one of his famous, I think one of his last quotes was that uh, the world has basically passed him by. He mm-hmm. said, the world's passed me by and I, I don't have, I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but I don't fit in this current world right now. Yeah. And it's true because what have we seen since then? No matter Republican, Democrat, it's all been about Who has the broad shoulders? Who has Mm -hmm. the smile? Who has the the gravitas? Mm -hmm. And all the way up to the present day, where, you of course, there's Donald Trump that, yeah, grates on a lot of people. But one of the reasons he won was because conservatives, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. went down the National Review, Bill Buckley, stuffy shirt, a glass of bourbon and a cigar type of conservatism that was it seemed like for your grandparents, Mm -hmm. it was, well, you know, we have decorum, we have this, that. And then Trump just comes out and takes a figurative dump on all of that. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, it was refreshing because I was a little bit tired of the, the the Namby Pamby Mitt Romney type of conservatives, uh, the, the John McCain's where they try to reach across the aisle and all they do is they just get, you know, they get told they're Nazis, they're racist, they're sexist, they're this and that. Until, of course, you know, they can be used in different uh, you know, elections and used as kind of a club. And so when you start to see some of those things have changed, you have to adapt to the times. So would a Calvin Coolidge type, if he were running in 2024, would he even have a chance? Absolutely not. Right. Maybe at the local level, maybe at the state level, which mm-hmm. is, in my opinion, more important when you look at federalism and the recent uh, goings-on with the uh, Roe versus Wade, the Dobbs case, and Obergefell and everything. But um, a Calvin Coolidge would probably make a, a solid governor nowadays. But, my God, he can't. He won't even come close to being president because we are so hyper-focused on who's going to be the personality who becomes president. And no matter left or right, that's what's going to happen. And, and this world really does need a Calvin Coolidge president, but they don't want a president right. like that, unfortunately. Well, that's
1: true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, much to his credit, I mean, even if the saying had been around back in the day, you would have never seen uh, Calvin Coolidge with a liberal tears coffee mug. <laughs> I mean, that was not the kind of guy he was. He was or a serious your guy. your
0: feelings t-shirt. Yes. Yeah.
1: It wouldn't have been him uh, doing that either. And uh, again, just to mention, as I, I think I forgot to at the outset, so we are here just past the 150th birthday of Calvin Coolidge, July 4th, 1872 is when he came into the world. So that's our timing on doing this here. And I want to harken back, since you mentioned Trump, uh, to your very great podcast. And I was very interested checking that one out, the Check Your Brain podcast with Tony Mazur. And uh, on that time when you had had Amity on to talk about this, it was very interesting because that was a thing where when you mentioned Trump, uh, there was some pushback from her, her being a good Uh, George W. uh, Bush, Apparachnik. Neocon, yeah. Yes, neocon and everything like that. And that's a thing where, I mean, if you want to go down the line and you want to point out all the dissimilarities uh, between Coolidge and and Trump, you could spend a couple hours on that. But much as she might not believe, you could easily do the same thing on George W. Bush. Both of them make LBJ look like pikers in terms of federal spending. So, I mean, this whole thing of like purer the now about George W. Bush versus Trump, uh, is just idiocy in my book.
0: That's where, when you start to look at how things have changed, and I think we could probably even get into it here in this podcast, mm-hmm. why did that change? When did it change? Can we pinpoint a time? Because, when, again, when you look at it, William McKinley was a very good president, mm-hmm. if you really look back in, in there. But again, we don't know anything about him. Right. We just knew about Denali, Mount, uh, Mount McKinley. Yeah. And um and from ohio just down the road here in canton ohio and
1: mark Hanna pulled the strings you know you hear more about the boss uh, mm-hmm. almost than the president
0: and that's the one problem is we can't pinpoint because again you mentioned about harding harding was kind of a you know i don't want to say a do nothing president but just kind of was there coolidge was a policy guy uh hoover was not a very good president but then it just decided to change was mm-hmm. that because of the new influx of mediums, such as radio, and then eventually television, was uh, more publications that were out. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to see silent films. You get the talkies during the period when Coolidge was president, mm-hmm. and then you have that more influx, kind of what we have today, where we have social media, and that stories are not necessarily broken in your local newspaper anymore. They're broken on Twitter. Mm-hmm. They're broken on heck, even TikTok or Snapchat or something. And it, that's how things have really exploded and fragmented where we're going with this national conversation. But it almost seemed to me that it coincided with Calvin Coolidge leaving is mm-hmm. where these mediums started, where radio became the thing in the late 20s and into the 30s. In fact, Calvin Coolidge, uh, I believe, was the first president to have his voice broadcast on the radio. He was. And ever since then, you'd have... FDR and his fireside chats Mm -hmm. Uh, Truman was around and Eisenhower had his speeches from being a military guy, NATO and then of course you had the Kennedy and Nixon debate of 1960 where Mm -hmm. if you were listening on the radio many said Nixon won, but if you watched on TV, Nixon's sweating and uncomfortable and Kennedy is a Kennedy and many say that helped swing the election so the media and the medium have changed since Calvin Coolidge. And that's why ever since him, we're getting these populist or trying to be populist presidents or at least presidential candidates. And it's, uh, is that for the better? Or are we just adapting to the times? I mean, again, I think conservatives had to adapt to the times in the, uh, you know, after getting their butts whooped in 2008 and 2012, Mm -hmm. that they had to have somebody that says, okay, well, you you are calling Mitt Romney a racist? Well, we'll show you somebody who has some problems with with a, a filthy mouth right now. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that's where we're at. But again, it just kind of the theme of this podcast and anytime you talk about Calvin Coolidge is the world does need a Calvin Coolidge, but the world does not want a Calvin Coolidge. That's true.
1: That's true. And uh, by the way, as, as far as uh, it goes with racial sensitivity and comedians and everything like that, uh, I, I always say, uh, whenever anybody uh, go, gets ready to throw you under the bus for that, Tony, I always say, you watch your mouth about my friend. He is, after all, a guy who insisted on getting married on Juneteenth. That's and right. And nobody can ever deny that from Exactly. Him, so. I
0: have a joke about it on stage. Yes. Not, I, I, won't, I won't say it on this podcast. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, um, it, it's, it's fascinating when you start looking at his life, and uh, I'm sure you talked about it in the solo podcast a little bit about Calvin Coolidge, and just... Humble beginnings, a mm-hmm. humble New Englander. Yeah. And somebody that you think about where, you know, 150 years, you talk about post-Civil War North. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is now, he's born in the time where we're having the Industrial Revolution. Yep. And you're kind of seeing somebody who is seeing it from the ground up from, basically from birth all the way up until he takes some type of public office. Yep. And, you know, you I, I, I'm going to, again apply this to today Mm -hmm. is that there are kids who are in high school and going on to college who have never known life without an iPhone, without YouTube, without Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So somebody like Calvin Coolidge, who was born at the, you know, at the very beginning, at the onset of the industrial revolution. So Mm -hmm. he gets an opportunity to see that from his perspective as he's growing up, that somebody who is a little bit older did not get to see. This is a new phenomenon coming from you know a little bit more of an agricultural background and now you're seeing these these cities kind of transform with steel mills and railroads and, and all these new types of technology that you're seeing in the latter por- portion of the 19th century.
1: Yes. That is true as all of that was picking up and uh, again in, in looking at this and to go back to a point that you had made just a bit ago here Uh, Our our good friend uh, and fellow FDH Lounge dignitary, Jake Digman, will be proud of me for wedging in a quasi CM Punk reference. But (laughs) in in the song called The Personality, it is no accident whatsoever that they have the quote in there. The only thing we have to fear, because that's the beginning of daddy government right Mm -hmm. there. That was the beginning of it. And, And basically taking the medium and crafting it to this Again, cult of personality, not to be too reductive, but that's exactly what it was. They were spot on with this thing. Kennedy took it a step further with the advent of modern public relations and uh, applying that to it and and having these type of figures in there uh, that we can be messianic about. Uh, That was what uh, Americans were conditioned to do over a period of time. You are right that Coolidge was the first president on radio. And I was surprised in the course of my research to find out that he was actually one of the most accessible presidents to the media in his time, but it wasn't a thing of like elbowing aside stuff to get in front of a microphone, or it wasn't really cameras then, although I think he might have been on some talkies a little bit, but you know what I mean. There's an attention-seeking way of doing it, and then there's a way of like, okay, come on in my office and I'll answer your questions, and that's what he was. He was a matter-of-fact guy making himself accessible <laughs> as opposed to the cult of personality guy making it about himself. And, yeah, I mean, I think this theme that we are developing here uh, is one that uh, has a lot of validity to it. Because, uh, you know, you did have Hoover, who was sort of a bridge between him and uh, FDR. But, man, once FDR got in there, there was no looking back. And I do not say that in a in a wistful way.
0: It's about policy. Mm-hmm. And it's so heavy on policy. And, I, again, I'm going to apply it to today, is that it, as we record this in July of 2022 – Gas prices are still about five bucks a gallon. Mm-hmm. Uh, inflation is out of control. Uh, the cost of a, remember last year where they said the cost of a, uh, a, the July 4th barbecue is down 16 cents from the previous year. It's like, yeah, because the previous year there was a little thing called a pandemic happening. Yes. And you told us we couldn't, we weren't allowed to do anything. Mm-hmm. So of course, and there was also a meat shortage that was happening in a lot of Tyson. A lot of these plants had COVID outbreaks and everything. So, you are now dealing so then they said it's down 16 cents wow well guess what it was up 12 dollars this time around and joe biden nowadays president 46 is going out and saying it's about russia it's all it's putin's price tag. it's putin it's all about putin and it's uh and then uh jerome powell came out and said it's because people didn't get vaccinated when they told them to and you realize. You're not taking any responsibility and it's all about policy. So if you go back a hundred years and you see where this country was pre World War One and then leading up to World War Two, it's two different Americas yes. if you think about it. That you one can make a case that Wilson should not have gotten us into World War One. Oh, very good case. Now, granted, if you're if we're not in World War One, of course we're not in World War Two, mm-hmm. probably not. And we're not the world superpower that we are today. We're mm-hmm. not the world police, but there is a great case that we should have stayed away in World War One. But you, you had no choice. Wilson got us in there. Many men died. It's the forgotten war. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I don't know if you can answer that why we just World War One is just the Great War was just forgotten about. I mean, it's again taught in schools for about three minutes, if that. And you move on to the Great Depression. And again, we gloss over this period where good policy pulled us out of these situations that were put in by someone like Wilson Mm -hmm. and and Harding. And people kind of forget about this. And I actually forgot about it, too, until I did a little bit of research. Before the Great Depression, in the early 1920s, there was another depression, Mm -hmm. a recession, a depression, a post-war hangover that was going on. Well, how do we get out of it, and how do we completely forget about that? It's because good policy pulled the United States out of it, made us a much more prosperous country, and that was Calvin Coolidge. It yep. was Calvin Coolidge who said he was going to be a small-government Republican, didn't spend a lot of money, or and pulled us out. And he did it. He actually did He didn't say he was going to do it like every other drunken sailor Republican that has come in the last oh- full century, yeah. uh, Calvin Coolidge did it. And that, it's all about policy. And that's why the 1920s, when we think about well, Great Gatsby, you think about anything, flapper girls, women's suffrage, they never give Coolidge the credit for why we got into a, a great situation as a country. If anything, they start to slowly give him blame for the Federal Reserve and why the Great Depression ended up happening uh, starting into the 1930s. So... It's uh, it it's a shame that he really does not get the credit that he deserves.
1: That is true, and I will say, uh, and, and again, and this might sound humorous on the one sense, but I actually mean this, you know, largely uh, in a straight up kind of a way. Having recently watched Boardwalk Empire, I did find it to be a little bit educational in what you're talking about with World War One, because the vets coming back—that was one of the subplots. There was the vets coming back. I mean, and if a hundred years later, if society is still largely illiterate about PTSD and everything that veterans uh, who, to me, are just pretty much the greatest heroes we have. If we, a hundred years later, don't understand what they're dealing with, imagine what it was then. Imagine what it was like for all those poor souls coming home after the horrors that they had seen.
0: I'm not sure if you you saw it. I forgot the name of the documentary, but Peter Jackson uh, did it. It was a couple of years ago and colorized like absolutely put color to old World War 1 films. Now, oh, wow. they're not Americans, they're they're British. Okay. They're, but you actually see because we look at war back in the day and you don't mm-hmm. put the humanity behind them because right. those people are dead. They're long dead. Right. And he obtained a lot of audio and video recordings from a lot of these veterans back in the 1960s who served in World War 1 who were elderly at that point. And you hear the thick brogues and uh, the accents and but you actually see—that's a nineteen-year-old. Yeah. We don't. We think of nineteen-year-old as somebody who's playing video games and is on Twitch streaming right now. Right. A nineteen-year-old who was probably lied about his age and mm-hmm. going into the military and has been there for a couple of years and serving during the entire war. And you actually see the 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 man. Mm-hmm. It, it's a young man who is fighting for his country. And it was very fascinating that you actually see that uh, in well well done. Colorization because you know, when I remember growing up and seeing the colorized Three Stooges (laughs) films, and they're like, Oh, that's like that washed out, yeah, uh, Technicolor or whatever it was that uh, Ted Turner was trying to colorize everything, (laughs) yeah. But uh, that's what's fascinating is getting out of World War One and that time between World War One and World War Two, and why we were provoked to go into World War Two. But we kind, of, you know, you talk about buying war bonds and getting us out and getting the economy going, and FDR with his New Deal, and uh, oh, by the way, FDR also wanted to pack the court yes. because he wasn't getting a lot of what he wanted out of his New Deal. Yeah, and everything uh, old is new again. Certainly, absolutely. They're just like, just like uh, overalls. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, getting back to Coolidge, what was fascinating about it was when you talked about daddy government, mm-hmm. and one of the big. I don't want to say it's a blemish, but just like every president has had some type of natural disaster that they've had to tend to. Mm -hmm. Well, when you see what's going on nowadays with this Dobbs case of Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade, yes, it was almost 50 years, uh, a more conservative (laughs) Supreme Court, 6-3. What what they did is they didn't ban it. It's not banned. You're not banned from getting an abortion right now. It's brought back to the state. So if you're Mm -hmm. in California, if you're in New York, if you're in Illinois or Connecticut... You could still get an abortion if you want to. Mm-hmm. But there might be states like Alabama and Mississippi that say, and maybe not. Right. Texas, heartbeat bill, and some states are going to probably curtail a lot of abortion. So what it does is, that's what's called federalism, and it mm-hmm. brings it back to the states. Calvin Coolidge had a situation during his administration where the Mississippi River flooded, left over 600,000 people homeless. Mm-hmm. So what do you do in a situation? Well, nowadays, it's let's get FEMA. Let's get the federal government to house these people. And of course, what we saw during with George Bush and Katrina Mm -hmm. is that, yeah, there was a lot of problems with the response from the federal government because that's what the federal government does. They're not really very good at a lot of these things. So what happened is Calvin Coolidge said, I would leave it to the states. He actually sent, of all people, Herbert Hoover Mm -hmm. out to go survey what was going on. And he was uh, he left it to the states and he was getting criticism at that time by saying, you know, why can't the federal government do something about it? Why are you leaving it up to the states? And uh, sure enough, in his home state, because they attacked him, they said, well, you're only doing this because you're a New Englander and you probably don't care about that part of the country. Well, sure enough, his area where he was from also had a massive flood. And what did he do? The same thing he did with the Mississippi flooding. Nothing, but not necessarily nothing. Leave it to the states to deal with it. Right, And they recovered a lot faster, uh, and I think history would prove itself that if the federal government got involved in that, you're not going to see some kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say reparations, but anything where you are getting that federal money to get your home repaired or rehomed or whatever the case is. And Coolidge did a great job when looking at that, and something that today's presidents should also be doing. So applying it once again to today for a hundred years is that we have a Supreme court that is allowing these decisions to head back to the states. And in, I think it's a great thing uh, because not every state, not every state's values are the same. California is much different from Montana. So even though we are the United States, we also have different values and different cultures. We essentially, we're not necessarily 50 states. We should, be kind of operating as 50 countries, kind of like the Europe, Europe before the European Union. Right. So I think some states can do certain things based on their values and what their voters want. And if you're a state that decides that, uh, you know, your values are like this and the federal government tried to force their values on you, well, now it's your opportunity to take it to the polls in November. So you know, what's what's the better society? What would you prefer, at who knows, maybe this uh, Supreme Court originalism that's going on is going to be, a, is going to hopefully set off, for me personally, and my, my values as being somebody who's more paleoconservative, that if we have more originalism in a Supreme Court, that it goes back to the states and we exercise and flex our muscles f- with using federalism and states' rights, that we go back to the days of Calvin Coolidge and that spirit that we had as individual states as opposed to always looking up to daddy federal government.
1: I agree. And uh, as the other paleocon residing in the state of Ohio, uh, I, <laughs> I find a lot to agree with there. And, and again, as far as originalism goes, federalism, I'm big fans of those things. Ironically, uh, in a world where Coolidge would not recognize anything else, the one thing he would, rec- that he would recognize would be the direction of the courts, because uh, that is basically of the time uh, really prior to FDR and that, that whole kind of uh, revolution that we went through—the unelected revolution—because uh, again, and this is one of the things I referenced uh, in my uh, commentary about uh, Coolidge was uh, the the complete bastardization of the Interstate Commerce Clause. Which, uh, from FDR on, it's been, oh, the federal government can do whatever because of the ICC. And prior to that, there was restraint, and that's the whole thing. When we talk about this here, this this all comes back to a, a theme of restraint and humility and everything like that for the Big Daddy government types government should be doing all of these kind of things, womb to tomb, et cetera, et cetera. He was a guy where, again, his uh, foreign policy was a very modest one. Uh, he did not pursue a hegemony across the world. He tried to make peace with some of the countries in Latin America that were uh, aggrieved. Uh, in terms of Germany, uh, he was, I never knew this until a couple days ago. He was lighter on them in terms of reparations. Uh, he passed, uh, I believe it was the, uh, well, he, he signed a law the, uh, the Dawes Act, I believe. And uh, that was the one, that uh ended our dawes plan that ended up uh taking it a little bit easier on germany unfortunately not easy enough to keep hitler from coming to power but you do what you can do and uh cooperation with canada the saint lawrence seaway which has done so much for the economy of both countries here so it's a thing where finding the ways to do it that don't interfere with again originalism (laughs) or anything like that staying in your lane being You know, humble, not acting like you have all the powers in the world. This is an argument that I got into with somebody years ago about, uh, I know it was Pope Benedict. There was this woman that was giving me grief about that. And uh, why doesn't he just do this? Why doesn't he change the the policies on gays and women priests, whatever? I was like, you don't get it. He doesn't think he can. Even if he was sympathetic, he doesn't think he can. There's a
0: college of cardinals. It's checks and balances. Yeah.
1: It's like and and you have these canons over time, and anything you do has got to be consistent with it. So that's the whole thing. You look at the legacy of FDR and everything else of, like, basically the Constitution being an etch-a-sketch here, and it basically says what you want it to say. And I, I remember just finding it so hilarious when Obama became president, of like, liberal Constitution professor. I'm like, what the hell is that? I mean, that must be the easiest job in the world. You just say, the Constitution says whatever I want to be in it, and you boom, you can be a liberal Constitution professor. I mean, everything has basically gotten warped in the days after Coolidge as far as any kind of understanding and restraint and there would be a lot of people listening to this. I know even good friends of mine that would think that, oh, this is the, these are they're abstract. These two white guys talking about these abstracts of federalism, cisgender, and stuff. cisgender, whatever. <laughs> but the thing of it is, Tony is, and this is another point that people don't get that I try to explain to them. This is the kind of stuff, being rooted to something concrete is what separates us from being a banana republic. And to the extent that we've become a banana republic in the last hundred years or so, and we're well down that road, I'm afraid, it's because we don't have any fealty to the Constitution and to the things that bind us. If you don't feel there are any restraints on what you can do, people forget. Power can be used for ill as well as for good.
0: What a lot of people do nowadays is they start to look at yesterday through the prism of today. Yep. And instead of looking at okay, yeah, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, but you want to look at what else he did? No, it doesn't matter. Everything that he does offsets because he was a racist who owned slaves. Right. Go. You know, I can't argue with you then because you do, or you are not. First of all, you're not coming with an actual argument about mm-hmm. what Thomas Jefferson was about. Nobody knew anything about Alexander Hamilton until six years ago when a musical came out about it. Right. <laughs> we have a real problem with lack of, like, as I mentioned early on, of not learning enough about... It's like we, we found a couple of buzzwords to take from it. George Washington, first president, he had wooden teeth, tried chopping down an apple tree, yep. or cherry tree. And John Adams, second president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson, he owned slaves and Declaration of Independence, and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, you get to Madison, Monroe, uh, Andrew Jackson, he was a racist. Uh, and then you start to look at everything through that prism. That mm-hmm. People were just attached to it because they were raised during an era where there was slavery, uh, that women didn't have the right to vote, that if you were gay or even, God forbid, transgender at that time, because, by the way, this isn't a new phenomenon. This has been going on for many, probably millennia. It's been happening, but uh, there were things going on that because we're not looking at things through today's prism, Mm -hmm. everything has to be completely offset and we need to start remaking The country in today's image Mm -hmm. and and what what you're doing is you're tearing down this is where i had the problem with the literal tearing down of the statues a few years ago Mm -hmm. now i'm not going full charlottesville when i say this but to preserve history and also being very uh, anti-communist that what happened in the communist countries is that they literally and figuratively tore down the statues of what made a, a country like russia great back in the day and put it in their own image of today. And that's what I fear was going on. So we tear down George Washington. We tear down uh, Thomas Jefferson. We say, oh, because then the slippery slope happens, where you say, well, Robert E. Lee. And this was my argument when I worked on radio, was I would argue with some of the listeners and some people who worked there by saying, you know, you start tearing down Robert E. Lee, there's going to be a slippery slope because, again, through today's prism, We're going to say, oh, that's racist. And so you tear down Robert E. Lee. Okay, well, you know, ahead of... uh, the. Okay, eh, all right, fine. Let's tear it down. Jefferson Davis. You go, okay, I can understand that. Head of the Confederacy, everything. What about Lincoln? Well, Lincoln freed the slaves. Emancipation Proclamation. Well, yeah, but Lincoln also had some bad history and this and that. So we tear down Lincoln. Then we tear down Jefferson. We tear down Washington. To the point where we're tearing down Kate Smith, who once (laughs) Yeah. You know, because she did a... Uh, a, a song that's racially insensitive by today's standards. We're uh, vandalizing a Stevie Ray Vaughan statue in Austin because people don't. People looked at him and they said, "Oh, he's a white man." And appropriating the clothes of uh, of Mexican or Hispanic yeah. people, uh, and we don't know our history. This is the problem: is we don't, we really don't know our history. And in my opinion, you mentioned Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not. I, I've had this feeling for a long time. I felt the 2012 election changed this country for the worse because we started looking things at things through the prism of this is racist, this is sexist, this is homophobic. This is it. It was intersectionality is what was really plaguing. Because instead of focusing on, and I'm not going to say MAGA, but mm-hmm. instead of focusing on our strengths, we wanted to tear ourselves down and implode it from the inside by mm-hmm. saying. America, there's systemic this and systematic that and uh, patriarchy and hierarchy and and this and this and this and this. And when you start getting into that point, you start to look at the values of what made this country and what made Western civilization great. And that's when you start to look at things through a larger perspective of a lot of empires collapsed after about 250 years. Well, we're at about 246 right now. Yeah. We're getting there to the point where we are eating each other. And it's not, uh, how did the Ottoman Empire end up fizzling out? How did the Roman Empire?
1: Yeah, implosion.
0: It was implosion. It wasn't from outside forces that knocked them down. It was what happened on the inside that just teared at the country. So this is where you get into the topic of national divorce. Mm -hmm. Do we, because if California is going to have abortion on demand, and Mississippi thinks that, you know, the voters believe that, you know, life begins at conception, you can, almost can't live in the same country if you believe in one and another part of the country doesn't believe in that. Right. So getting back again, long way of saying this, of getting back to Coolidge where we did have a world war that we we're recovering from. Mm-hmm. And to try to put us back on the map before, of course, the, you know, eventual you-know-what hit the fan come the 1930s, it, uh, we were fractured as a country. But somehow we found some kind of centralizing figure that wasn't a populist mm-hmm. to get us there. Well, all of a sudden we have now, as everybody wants to, whether it is Trump being braggadocious or Obama saying that uh, I killed Osama bin Laden. I was there. I had I had the pistol in my hand. <laughs> and Joe Biden, who's taking credit for everything, even though you know things haven't really gone too well, uh, especially lately. And he's upset that he's not getting enough credit. <laughs> we have populism that's going on right now that is... It, it's this what and a lot of it is phony populism as i said earlier most of it that is really plaguing our public discourse right now in our body politic and that's why as i said twice before i'll say it again i'll say it probably until i'm blue in the face is that we do need a calvin coolidge Mm -hmm. we're not going to get a calvin coolidge because we're so i mean you, you talk about globalism and everything i know i'm just ranting right now but it gets to that point where you need somebody who's going to bring us together and do those, non, those non-sexy those non things to get us back on track, but I, I don't know who the next person is going to be that's going to help us get back on track and who that next Calvin Coolidge is.
1: Well, yeah, and that's the whole thing, is that Calvin Coolidge, again, he was essentially, I think, a timeless man in a timeless age. We had started to see the country with, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson starting to go down the progressive path. But basically, uh, it was a, a, a time and a place where things really didn't change uh, that much, particularly like they are today. And, and, and again, in, in some ways, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the people who are so self-satisfied looking back uh, do make a good point on things about race. I mean, that was sort of like a a weird national psychosis of like where we all convinced ourselves that these other people were like subhuman, which is why, by the way, I give so much more credit to the abolitionists. I mean, imagine what it was like to stick your neck out and say, hey, people are people, man. I mean, that was, you talking about a, a thing out of time in its place. But we've so course corrected on that. You're absolutely right, because you talk about the 2012 election. You know, some of us might have different benchmarks in time or whatever, but that's not a bad one to cite as far as that goes. Because I remember this was like 2010, 2011, when there was a sitcom that I really enjoyed called Outsourced. It was on NBC, and it was a really good one. It was about a call center gets sent over to India and... The American guy that ran the call center was the butt of the jokes. It was not mean-spirited at all. I mean, there were some buffoons that were in the call center, but it's no different than if it was buffoons in an American call center. But, oh, because it's an Indian thing. So the the show got canceled after a year, and within a few years, it was like, oh, boy, they couldn't make that show today. It was a sea change. It was very, very quick. And I go to another thing here as I uh, bring up uh, a, a, a bad memory of this was in 2018. So me being relatively new on my HOA board. Uh, we had a little bit of a controversy with a neighboring association, and they took down a plaque in a common area for our founder. A long story, but uh, they were not really within their rights to do that. It was in a common area, but they, they overstepped their bounds. But my good friend, who was the president, invited me as a fellow officer to a summit meeting uh, and to be her bad cop, as I generally was. And I remember saying to the guy, this is in America, he's not Saddam Hussein, we don't do that here. And it was like, that was 2018. Yeah. And it was like, within two years, whew, boy, they were falling like dominoes, Tony.
0: as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. It's amazing, and and, and one of the reasons I bring up 2012 as opposed to 2008, you and I were working together over at uh, uh, the internet station. The old network, yes. And... You and I were kind of on a, on our island. Yes, we had arguments with some of our coworkers at the time about the rise of Barack Obama, and we kind of foresaw what was going to go on. Now, his hope and change, and we're not red state America, we're not blue state. We're the United States of America. Had everybody goes crazy, and you have the sacrificial lamb and John McCain, who was just a cadaver at that point. Mm-hmm. And we we kind of knew the writing on the wall, and sure enough, uh, McCain got his butt whipped by Obama. And that hope and change feel of like, hey, we're going in a different direction. But then we started hearing this term called a fundamental transformation of America. Mm -hmm. You're like, and the the first lady said the first time that she was ever proud of her country was when her husband was winning election. And you go, uh oh, we might be going down an interesting path. So 2008 Obama was hope and change and everything. 2012 was, if you don't vote for me, you're a racist. Mm -hmm. And that really started putting things in much different perspective because then after he wins, then it's, if I had a son, he looked like Trayvon. Or cops acted stupidly. Or there were a lot of things that Obama was saying that they weren't mistakes, Mm -hmm. that were really tearing away at our society and our culture to the point where 10 years later now in 2012, or 20, uh, 2022, there's a story that I read, because uh, we're recording this in just after July 4th, there was a story that fewer Americans than ever are proud of America. Yes. And I I, I don't have the mic, I don't have good service down here on my phone, but I, I would look it up, but I was reading the stats that even a lot of Republicans are not you know, that proud of America. It's like dwindling over time.
1: Could be a convergence with Biden being president. Yeah, you might have some right as well as left.
0: But still, you'll still have more Republicans, even with a Democrat Congress and Republican or Democrat president, the Republicans will still be a little bit more proud than a Democrat. Well, Democrats at this point, because of Roe versus Wade being overturned and all the, you know, the hysteria revolving around COVID and the vaccine passports and everything and Trump and everything, that in the last couple of years, it, it's even more decreased that they're not proud to be American. Jessica Chastain, the actress, put a middle finger up on Twitter the other day by basically saying, like, you know, F your repro-, you know, reproductive rights, or this is, a, or, or uh, America's a great place if you're a cisgender white man who doesn't mm-hmm. have to deal with. And you go, this spirit of what made this country great. And and the people who came before him, the, whether the pre, before us, the presidents, the Calvin Coolidges that put us up on in this level and helped make Western civilization the envy. I mean, we, you know, as much as you don't like the fact that uh, America is this racist hellhole that we are, why are there still so many people crossing the border and wanting to be Americans now? Yeah. That whether legal or illegal, we are still a great country. And the idea of America is better than any. It's still the greatest country uh, yep. around Britain. It was so funny. I saw Jessica Beale who okay. posted something the other day where she's like, Paris is great. I love being in France. This is wonderful. <laughs> they have great croissants. And oh, by the way, they care about women's rights. And then you really look it up and you go, oh, wait a second. Uh, France has way more restrictive reproductive restrictions than they do in America. America is extremely liberal, even in states, even in red states like Florida. Right. There's a lot of countries in Europe that are like, yeah, no, it's reproductive rights. What what are you talking about? You either have the baby or, uh, you know, you you close your legs. Kind of one of those situations. So we've lost that American spirit for a lot of us. I don't know what it's going to take to get it back. So I think maybe more students should be learning about the history of the United States in longer periods i mean do, do kids need to go to school all year round as opposed to taking a three-month vacation during the summer we just don't we we have like the cliffs cliff notes version of history but it's not even just the cliff notes version of u.s history it's the howard zinn
1: mm-hmm. cliff
0: notes version of history yes. where we're only getting certain things that are sanitized thanks to uh scholastic and uh mcgraw hill and all these other uh, companies that have thrown their biases and all the way to the Ibram X. Kendi and the uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones 1619 project and critical race theory and, and gender theory and gender queer this and that and stuff. It's like this is what's kind of breaking things up in the country. Now, this is where we get to somebody like Coolidge. We're promoting federalism and states' rights and school choice. Now, that's the big one is we're yeah. hearing about school choice. We're hearing more people care about capital gains taxes and everything mm-hmm. like that. These are now finally at the forefront where maybe we are on a new precipice. Maybe we are crossing over where some of us are like, yeah, I care more about laissez-faire capitalism and economic policy or Austrian economics and learning about Murray Rothbard, learning about uh, Mises, learning about uh, the writings of Ron Paul. Mm -hmm. And the people are starting to really get into this while others are left behind and you know, watching Netflix all day right. and Tiger King and everything. So maybe we are in a different time where a national divorce could be happening, which in some ways, and a lot of historical figures would think it would be unthinkable that we would split a country into two different countries or even 50 different countries. But Hey, uh, that's what it comes down to. Like I said earlier, the values of a Florida are going to be drastically different from the values of Vermont. Yeah. And, I think that's what makes America great, and that's where you did have McKinley's, you did have Coolidge, you did have some of these other kind of hands-off presidents understood that at the time. But we were also admittedly in a different country. We we're yes. in a different media and medium, and it's, it's just a different society now.
1: Well, yeah, and that's where it's it's interesting as you were growing along and making your points that you subsequently mentioned, and I don't know that this name would have come to mind for me, but you put your, your finger on it as far as exemplifying it when you said Howard Zinn, because I was going to make a point about that way of thinking, but he exemplifies it perfectly with his textbooks and all of his uh, things like that, is that what progressivism has always embodied is a conditional love of country. Yeah. And like what you said about Michelle Obama and everyone else, and that when the mask drops, they'll admit it. They're conditionally proud of country. And listen, there are left-wing intellectuals who, and I, I check out all ranges of media here. I used to really enjoy listening to, enjoy, agreed with hardly any of it, but the Michael Brooks podcast when he was still alive before he sadly passed away. Like I, I will listen to things and seek out different points of view. And the intellectually honest ones will admit that. It is based on a conditional love of country. I don't love my country unconditionally, because if you do, that means you love slavery, that means you love this, that, whatever, uh, as opposed to, uh, again, you can love your country, I think, without reservations, without excusing uh, some of the worst things that we've done over a period well, of time.
0: Well, you and I are both Catholics. Yes, yes. And I can, I can love my faith. Yes. I can love uh, the tenets of Catholicism. Yes while also understanding that there was a massive problem that was being covered up for many years. Yeah, the kid did the one. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we are allowed to separate the two yes. by understanding. that It's nuance. It's a it's perfect point of comparison. all about nuance. Yes. And I think love of country and mm-hmm. the, the love of, I hate the word, nationalism, not white nationalism, yeah. nationalism, much different. You can say patriotism, nationalism, whatever it is, but love of country, you can understand that, yes, America per- participated in some you know, pretty heinous stuff in Mm. in its history, but also what you're looking at it through the lens of 2022 that, hey, maybe in a different, they weren't woke enough for us uh, back in the day, but yeah, America did some crappy things. So every other country, Right. and you have to take the good with the bad and understand that's all part of our history. And one of my big things, I always say this in a lot of podcasts when I talk about history is history is not always kind. Right. Do the winners write the history books? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Yeah. I think, I think in certain cases, but I think nowadays when you start dwelling on the pitfalls of America mm-hmm. and not teaching children what is great about this country, if you're just going to say it's great because gay people can get married now and uh, there's three bathrooms now for somebody who's not identifies as non binary, you're only looking at it. We're doing the Howard Zinn thing of it's only good because. It's conf- It's just like with the Supreme Court, right? Supreme Court. I love the Supreme Court because it's a liberal Supreme Court, and uh, and it's doing things that confirm my beliefs, right? But then, as time went on, and the you know, the shift in the Supreme Court that ended up happening, now we don't love our country. Now sure. we don't love the fact that uh, we're going to politicize the court, right? That uh, we're that we're going back to originalism instead of progressivism in the mm-hmm. court, and. It's, uh, and, and, and by the way, I should say this now Republicans are guilty of this too. Sure. They are guilty of bastardizing their own uh, view of history and trying to muddy the waters. Absolutely. And you you have neoconservatives who love to get us into any type of war possible. Yep. You war have boners. Anywhere from the Bill Crystals of the world to Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham that mm-hmm. have never seen a war they haven't wanted us to get into. Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton. The, the fact that we're still sending money to ukraine and not having any prominent republicans say you're you were sending money to ukraine but there are still families that are out of work and were put out because of covid in the last couple of years and we sent them a couple of bucks right essentially if anything also we're sending what, well, tens of billions to over to ukraine well
1: what's going to happen when uh you know, about a dozen planes at various points in time around the world get shot down by stingers what are we going to have to say about that huh because we're not keeping track of where they're going.
0: Yeah, and here's your military now, is we care more about pronouns. Yep. Is that what the Navy has a video that came out uh, the last couple of weeks of uh, educating on the proper pronouns to use, because you don't want to misgender somebody. And I'm like, if that's what the military is concerned about, while I see Russia continuing to flex their muscles, you see China and you see other Eastern countries that are like, yeah, we don't we don't buy into that. No, I'm not saying that, we shouldn't be focused that there shouldn't be any focus on LGBTQ rights. I'm all for that. I'm a sexual libertarian. You do whatever you want, but we have to also look at priorities and strengthen as a country. And if we're focused so much on, well, as long as um, we, we make sure we have more diversity in our army commercials, you know, then your, your priorities have just completely gone whack. And uh, hopefully we can get to a time where, we decide to finally say no. And I think the step uh, for me being, again, a a more paleo conservative, more of a Pat Buchananite Mm -hmm. of somebody that I don't want us to, I'm an isolationist. I don't want us to participate in any wars. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be weak on foreign policy, but Mm -hmm. I also don't want to keep, you know, lobbing cruise missiles over and killing more brown people when we're killing our own people with the influx of fentanyl and uh and, and everything that's going on in our own country we have gun violence, we have mass shootings, we have mental illness that we're not addressing yet we care more about Ukraine. Why? because that's what, we're going to go over there with Raytheon and with Blackrock and all these others of trying to rebuild the country again because that's what it's all about it's just it's quid pro quo what's going on over there and if you have somebody like Calvin Coolidge who didn't get us a nanny ward... right again, not weak on foreign policy, but also did not get us in there. Like you said, you're talking about tariffs and talking about a lot of what was going on in those days mm-hmm. that we didn't get ourselves into any conflict right. after World War One. Now, granted, I know a lot of people talk about Geneva Convention and uh, all of that, but there is, a, there is something to be said about somebody who is going to say, no, I'm not going to, and that's where my comparison, that I know Amity didn't really like when I talked mm-hmm. about Trump and Coolidge is that Trump is the first modern-day president, did not get us into any wars. Yeah. You know, he continued a lot of them, and, you know, the, what, the atrocities that are still to this day going on in Yemen, mm-hmm. uh, but he didn't get us into any major wars at this time. Yeah. And I think you need to applaud that, especially for a president. I know the bar is very low, but for that to be going on, I know the more stuffy-shirt East Coast uh, elitist conservatives don't like that, but it's the truth.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with uh, applauding being able to stay out of uh, wars. The way that I describe it with myself, uh, I, I always go for the label of common sense non-interventionist. uh, you know, not not a pacifist uh, in the sense of if, if there is a need to do something, but it damn well better be a good need and it damn well better be spelled out. So, I mean, you know, Coolidge standing as, as a man of basically a bygone time as far as the values of America and everything like that. I mean, we've pretty well defined that as a theme and that he was kind of the end of it when he left office here. To, to start to bring it full circle on, on my end, from my perspective, I want to go back to what you said before about uh, you and I somewhat being on a little bit of an island uh, at the uh, Sports Talk Network days, and uh, I still remember, and I think you were on it, the election night special in 2008, mm-hmm. and uh, that was one where uh, I was on there and I was breaking it down and I was trying to be a pro, but it was just one of these things where I think the celebratory mood around the place and all the hopey changey people and yeah. that kind of stuff was just getting to me because, uh, again, I, I rarely don't vote third party, but I admit I voted for McCain that time. And the only times I've done it, quite frankly, in the 20th century, 21st century was then and 04, just because I was like uniquely terrified of John Kerry. But those are like the only two times when I haven't gone third party. So, and I knew McCain wasn't going to win. I knew that it was a loser campaign and everything like that. Uh, Although I was, I was fond of... It was a
0: protest vote. It was a protest vote.
1: Yeah, I was fond of Sarah Palin before she really completely flipped her disco. I was fond of her at that moment in time and, hoped that she would become the next president. But the one moment in time, I will always cherish this. And I subsequently apologized to my friend for the remark I made, but I got so heated. It's the only time Paul Belfie ever called me out for unprofessionalism (laughs) because I said on the air, just capturing the mood of everything like that. And I happened to single in on one of our friends as being representative of this. And I ranted into the microphone, that it, it is an atrocity, that we live in a country where Anthony Patron's <laughs> vote can cancel off my vote. <laughs> <laughs> it was just... Anthony wasn't even listening. I told him about it later. I'm like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I got a little carried away, whatever. But the fact that, like, Belphy of all people, a classic hypocritical move on his part calling me unprofessional yeah. for having yeah, done exactly. that. Of you know?
0: all, all the sexual jokes that he would make. And the, <laughs> uh,
1: you know, but that was, that was an example of it right there. And, like, that moment in 08, that was just sort of... To, to me, that's a thing like uniquely sort of reflective of the age that we live in. When we talk about Coolidge being a bygone figure, I don't know that to me he ever felt like more of one than he did on that night.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you talk about third party, and I think that is one where if a Calvin Coolidge ran today, it would split the vote. Yep. And you and I had a long conversation many years ago talking about Ross Perot. Mm-hmm. And I think you said that was your first election, maybe? Uh, my first was, uh, HWN 88, 88. Okay. So it was one of them, but the Ross Perot splitting the vote of a lot of Reagan conservatives. And you saw what, you know, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. And then there's new taxes. Mm -hmm. And you realize that George HW Bush was just a, just a feckless leader, got us into a stupid war in the desert storm. And really just never took off of like being the, as we talked about earlier, being mm-hmm. the successor to Ronald Reagan. Yep. So because of that, you had a lot of, you had somebody like Ross Perot who came on board and kind of showcased what he can do economically as we headed into towards the 21st century. What could be a possibility? Mm-hmm. And a lot of conservatives said, yeah, I mean, look. I, I I would prefer who's ever going to be the Democrat candidate to not win, but this guy is the right idea. And yep. what it did is it split the vote and Bill Clinton, obviously, and the rest is history, what you see from the entire Clinton family mm-hmm. uh, in the last 30 years that we've seen since Whitewater. The third-party candidates that have popped up have just really not been as effective. But in 2012, I I voted for Ron Paul. I went Ron Paul yep. that time because... Yeah, uh, You and I talked about it, and mm-hmm. we, we made our protest vote for John McCain in 2008. We held our nose, and yep. that was my first actual election because I was 20 years old at the time. By 2012, and we had had a lot of conversations because we were kind of on the Rand Paul train, I right. believe, and Rand just wasn't there yet. He's right. there now. Right. He's absolutely, he's been outstanding when he's been holding Fauci to the fire and everything that's been going on during the COVID uh, regime, but... In 2012 and 2016, Rand Paul was not there. So, uh, and I was not a Mitt Romney guy, and I know you called him Mittens uh, as a pejorative. Loathed
1: him. And
0: sure enough, what what did he do? He was just all he was was just a namby-pamby. I'm a I'm a conservative who I'm religious and I'm this and Paul Ryan and uh, another one with his widow's peak and oh I work out to rage against the machine. Good for you. Yeah the Republicans need to get their butts kicked and they did in order to try to regroup after the tea party movement. Uh, But I was a Ron Paul guy because I'm like, you know what this Ron Paul is the right idea. I wasn't on board in 08 because I I think I read a lot of fake stories about him talking about space aliens and everything. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, this guy's a little bit of a nutso for me. And then you look into him and you say, this man is this man's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And that's why I decided I'm going third party and I'm voting because I know Obama's going to win the second term, but I need to go third party. So if you had a Calvin Coolidge or somebody who was just a very heavy policy person that would be on that big stage for a, whether it's a Republican or even a Democrat, who knows? Uh, but I, I think more, well, let's be honest, would be more Republican heading into 2024. We all know that if Trump decides he's going to run he has a very good shot at winning. Mm-hmm. If Trump is, feels that he's getting a little old or whatever the case is, it's probably going to be Ron DeSantis. But who's the next Calvin Coolidge? Is there a Calvin Coolidge that is in our Congress right now? If anything, I'm a big Thomas Massey guy. Mm-hmm. I think he's just fantastic. I think he kind of is in that like true small government type of conservative libertarian. And that's uh, that's non-interventionalist. Uh, I think he's somebody that uh, to kind of watch out for as time goes on. But, again, I don't know if there's going to be somebody that is just like, guys, I just, I just want to get my job done and go home. Like, I yeah. want to clock in, I want to clock out. We're, we, we don't have that type uh, in our DNA, whether it's Republican or Democrat.
1: Yeah, no, that is definitely the case. And, uh, you know, when I look at the last couple of candidates that I had voted for for, uh, for president in the general election, I don't know so much that, uh, and, you know, I, I, I did like her in 2020, but I, I mo- it was mostly that she was the the, the only third-party candidate that didn't make me retch, Joe Jurgensen. It was also good for pissing off the Hillary people. Yes. I'm with her, yes. you know, so that was good. But Daryl Castle in 2016 and uh, the, the, the former Republican congressman in 2012 who ran with the, on the Constitution Party line, and I cannot remember his name at the moment. It, it is it is eluding me.
0: It's not Bill Weld, is it? No,
1: it, oh no 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 no, I wouldn't have voted for that. <laughs> not in a million years, Bill buddy.
0: W- and by the way, Gary Johnson, uh, what a disappointment. See, here's what. So I leaned, and I've learned a lot about libertarian policy and politics mm-hmm. over time, and and. I think they're getting better. They have uh, what's called the Mises Caucus and yes. the Mises Institute down in uh, Auburn, Alabama, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of really good people that are a part of it that are kind of taking over that caucus and getting away from some of the woke left wing libertarianism that's going on. Mm-hmm. Where they're just basically, and then you would have, but you, they ended up having the Bill Welds and the Gary Johnsons who were basically, right. uh, you know, pretty you know lackluster Republicans who said. Hi guys, I'm changing party. I'm going right. to be a libertarian, and and Joe Jorgensen was ah, just not impressive. Yeah, not impressive. And she had the, there was one tweet that she had that, that it wasn't from her. I think it was a staffer under her name mm-hmm. that was right after the George Floyd. Because this is when you know stay home, stay safe. You can't go to a playground. You can't go to a beach. But then, uh, oh George Floyd's dead. You can go protest with tens of thousands of people. And libertarians should have been the ones to say. Yeah, you should go protest, but you should also do whatever you want. Instead, they said, well, you should probably wear a mask and it's not enough to be uh, passively not racist. You need to be actively anti-racist. I'm like, did Bernie Sanders write (laughs) this? Uh, Did Elizabeth Warren, did Pocahontas, uh, she, her on Twitter? And they just fell apart, and I'm like, gosh, the libertarian movement just needs a kick in the pants right now.
1: Well, the in, in 2012, I just looked it up, the Constitution Party candidate, Virgil Good, he was somebody, a congressman from Virginia, he was a ball weevil Democrat who switched Republican, I think probably in the late 90s. One oh, of those
0: Dixiecrats.
1: Dixiecrats who became a Republican, and then he ran... Uh, third party in 2012 I voted for I was like really impressed by him I thought he was really good and he was somebody I think that was actively kind of paleocon so yeah I mean when you're talking about the heirs to Calvin Coolidge today I mean that shows you how marginalized it is unfortunately that that it comes to this you know but uh, again just uh, I keep coming back to you know a bygone time a bygone you know kind of place and, and he represented in you know, a sort of the end of that America and that America of restraint of government officials humility of it not having the godlike complex uh that i'm president i can do whatever by by my fiat powers that i think i have i mean he was the last one i think we ever had who, who really felt restrained by that so i mean i, I that's that's kind of my depressing okay, as i bring it full circle that's kind of my depressing thoughts on it uh, how, how would how would you sum up basically you know, what he meant and, and, and where that led us to.
0: Well, where I look at some of these conservatives that have fallen in line of looking at Calvin Coolidge, and I, I always make the joke, I, I half joke about this, but I've, I've said it on my podcast, if we go to Mount Rushmore, if there's a way we can explode the <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln off of there, yeah, and uh, have a contest to see who the other two would be, and in my opinion, the, the three that would be up there, and one of them has to be knocked out, it's the one of those FMK type of situations, is I would put up there Ron Paul, Pat Buchanan, and Clarence Thomas. Okay. Because all three of them are people who, when you start looking at their policy and what they have, some of their writings fall in line with the Calvin Coolidge uh, type of, you know, when you have Clarence Thomas, who is an originalist, mm-hmm. and when you look at policy and Ron Paul, and Pat Buchanan, when he ran for the Republican ticket and then eventually the Reform Party, that the big thing was fiscal policy. Yeah. And that's what Calvin Coolidge is a part of, was fiscal policy and constitutionalism. And we have gotten away from that. It doesn't matter which party you're looking at, whether you're you know, a fan of Joe Biden, if you're riding with Biden or if you're Donald Trump, you're on the Trump train. Mm-hmm. We've gotten away from the tenets of the Constitution and getting away from that and looking at the... Um, what everything is, it, it it bringing that power back to the people, and and I mean, if, if you look, I actually have a tattoo that says "We the People" yeah. it's on my arm right
1: the now. The actual script, no less.
0: And it's it, it's one of those. I respect
1: that a lot more than if it was like stencil.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I just it, it's washing off in the shower. It's uh, it's one of those henna <laughs> tattoos. And what we the people is, is should be the most inclusive thing. It's not we the white people. It's yep. not we the straight people. Yep. It's we the people. Yep. And you need somebody who is a constitutionalist, who will get us back into those days and understanding the importance of people's vote and the importance of the freedom that people have. And during the Coolidge administration, like I said about how you have an umpire who does not try to make himself part of the game, yep. that's what Calvin Coolidge did as a president he did not make himself part of the larger part of the conversation, where every single day we have to complain about the president. He yep. didn't do that during Coolidge. And that's why when we look at the Roaring Twenties, we never equate the Roaring Twenties with Coolidge, even though we should. Right. It's because you didn't know who the president was. You didn't care who the president was. Yep. Everything is great. Yep. And if the American people can be docile enough to feel that Hey, everything's great, and I don't have to wake up and complain about the president today. Yeah, that's a good country; it's a great country, and that's what Calvin Coolidge kind of embodied in those days. And again, are we going to find a Calvin Coolidge? Is there are we going to reverse course? Are we going to return to Monk, as some would say, and go backwards a little bit, but not backwards uh, in like a, a mental feeling of? But a lot of people moving towards into the to the out of the cities and into the countryside and. You know, that can change some of the demographics when it comes to voting, when you look at the politics of it, sure. but the culture of it. You, and, and as Andrew Breitbart has said, that and, that uh, politics is downstream from culture, mm-hmm. that you have to look at the cultural aspect. And if you're somebody that you have a president that isn't even worried about the cultural culture war, is just trying to get through the nitty gritty. Yeah. And we kind of need to go back in those days instead of having presidents start to fight the culture war because it's not really going to work out well for
1: them. Yeah, I, I just I find the culture war nauseating. It's the reason I don't listen to hardly any talk radio anymore. I just steer away and tune out from so much stuff. And again, to, to back up what you're saying, I would love to live in a country where I don't even think about who the president is in the course of a day. That, that sounds like yep. nirvana, basically, what they had in the 20s. They didn't think about him at all, and that might be the nicest thing you can say about him. But uh, you, you summed it up very well. Tony Mazer, as I, I knew that you would, uh, appreciate your time. My good friend, longtime FDH lounge dignitary and proprietor of the outstanding Check Your Brain podcast uh, available uh, through standard uh, channels, uh, Apple Podcasts uh, among those, as well as the uh, Patreon so go check that out. Uh, Tony, once again, thank you so much for your time, my friend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Rick. It's uh, I cover the culture war on my podcast because uh, I'm not a political expert, but I see the rot that's going on in the culture, mm-hmm. so I like to look at the politics and apply some of the culture to it because I, I feel I'm a little bit closer to that than being somebody who can be a, a, a political expert, mm-hmm. but yeah, go check out my podcast. It's uh, free every Wednesday. i got a podcast coming up tomorrow where we rip on The Maxwell Show. Okay. Uh, which is well, really fun from back in the day. It's a local Cleveland reference. Um, but uh, And then my Patreon, I put up about four podcasts a week at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. Five bucks a month.
1: Yeah, it is uh, well worth it. Uh, I can say that uh, from experience here. And as far as you tackling the, uh, the culture war on your show, I might perhaps say, you're a bigger masochist in that regard than I am. I'm just like, I'm not going to deal with that crap. I, I see enough of it on Twitter. But uh, yeah, your, your show, truly outstanding, the Check Your Brain podcast with Tony Mazer. Thank you, Tony. And uh, thank you, everybody, for checking out our salute to President Calvin Coolidge on the 150th anniversary of his birth.